Hi, Sapphire. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on your score. I just finished watching the series last night, and I am so excited for the rest of the world to get to see it. I was just immersed the whole time. If I didn't have finals, I probably would have binged it in one day. <laughs> That's What's so sweet. The, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. What's the anticipation like waiting for it to be released? Yeah, it's it's interesting just because, you know, I feel like I wrapped it up a while ago now. And it's it's funny to just like the past couple of weeks sort of have, yeah, all of this excitement kind of bubbling around it. I'm I'm really thrilled. I'm 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 hoping that people really enjoy the series. Um I absolutely loved working on it. Um and I think it's it's got a lot of unique things going for it. So I'm excited, a little nervous, but just like mostly excited for people to kind of uh yeah enjoy this story. Have you seen it since you finished uh, scoring everything? No. Um, you know, we we finished it actually last year, and then they actually opened it back up again, which is not totally unusual, but sometimes that happens. Um, they did some reshoots and kind of did some re-edits. So I ended up going back into it starting in January, and then we finished up in March again. So it hasn't been that long, I guess, since the final, like we kind of finished up the final dubs and stuff. Um, so I'm excited again, though, to even see sort of, it, it feels so different watching it like back in my studio as I'm working on it than it does actually sitting in my living room where I watch other things on Netflix, you know, to like actually see it on the homepage and kind of just like press play that that's just a different experience emotionally, I think. So I'm excited to, to kind of um, dive into it once again. Yeah, absolutely. So to get us started, we're going to travel back in time a little bit. So the project hits the ground, you're brought on board. What were your initial thoughts going into it? And what was the process like starting such a unique show? It was a little bit daunting at first. Um, I had seen the first episode and then had read a couple of scripts before I went in for my first meeting. Um, and as you saw, I mean, that's only just the tip of the iceberg, really, you know, um, kind of starting out and, and starting to meet these characters. Um, I knew that it was going to be this like big epic journey, like a little bit Shakespearean. And kind of, I knew there were going to be so many different um, moving parts to it. And so I was definitely aware that the score needed to be a big part of that storytelling. So I was excited by it. I really was. And they brought me in. They hired me at a time where they had already had all eight episodes, like a good cut of them, like a fine cut, because they had been editing for quite some time. They had been in post-production for a while. Um, so by the time we sat down and had a spotting session with the executive producers and the showrunner, um, they were in really good shape. And it was nice to be able to have all eight of them there to like sit down and actually have all of the spotting sessions even before I wrote a note of music. That's a pretty rare thing. Usually it's kind of like, especially in television, it's, um, you know, the schedules can get pretty nuts and sometimes they're still filming while you're doing like a previous episode or something and you don't really understand what the trajectory of the show is gonna be. This wasn't like that at all. It was really important for the showrunner, Sang Kyu Kim, that it feel like 
a long feature film and not like an episodic season. That was like a goal of his. He was like, it's, you know, it's nonlinear storytelling. There's lots of characters. We're hopping back and forth between present day and past and we're going around the world. Like that. he wanted it to feel just like this big all encompassing epic journey. So that we were kind of just, you know, not with these characters just for a little snapshot, but it felt like it was, it was growing and it was growing towards the end of the season. So with that in mind, I had certain plans for the score, um, especially in episode seven, which is like kind of the big epic journey episode. I had decided some things creatively before I had even started writing. So that was a different process because sometimes you don't always get to do that. And I think that it benefited um, the end product quite a bit because I was able to kind of unwind conceptually some musical ideas that I had planted. Um, I had planned to plant in later episodes. And I think that made for hopefully a better musical payoff as we get towards the end of the season. It is so awesome to hear you say that. When I was first listening to it, I looked at episode seven and I was like, I feel like everything just kind of came together here musically. I remember there was a point where the six characters who are the six silhouettes in the title sequence, they're all there. And suddenly you hear that theme from the title sequence actually in the episode. And I was like, yes, oh my gosh, that just fits so well. And I felt so satisfied because I was like, I feel like this is a sonata and we finally just hit that recapitulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 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 really nice of you to point out. Um, yeah, that main theme that you hear in the main title, um, I had written initially for Sheldon's character, the Utopian. So you'll hear that theme follow him around in different capacities, but it's really kind of the show theme and it's the theme for the union, you know, and all of the morals and what the union represents. Um, and the intention there was that I wanted to write a theme that could sort of expand and contract, you know, I wanted it to be able to like sing proudly and with a noble, you know, um, interpretation, if there were heroics happening, or, you know, if there was some darkness or seediness happening, I wanted to be able to have it, you know, like on a low choir or low strings or something, um, just to give it something insidious, that's, you know, there's something rising up in the union, there's something different happening here. And like I mentioned before, um, I had a big plan for episode seven, um, before I had started, which was to write a for one of the pinnacle moments when our characters um, get get their powers, when they're granted their powers, I wanted to write a chorale. Um, there was just something about the scene itself was so bizarre and wonderful and just just strange and beautiful. And I was like, the music needs to do something bold here. You know, I, I don't, I want it to feel special and intentional. Um, so I was like, what you know i think choir has that majestic quality to it and um after deciding that i kind of sold the producers on it again before i had written a note of music and i was like well like, it's gonna be a little bit weird if just suddenly in episode seven a choir pops up so i decided to make vocals a very subtle kind of strange part of the score so i unwound that idea of the chorale and recorded some like fragments of it, right? So just like kind of teasing it like a little breadcrumb trail along the way. Um, I got my closest friend, my life friend, um, I call her Ari Mason, is an incredible vocalist and viola da gamba player. And she just is able to really, I mean, 
explore her voice in ways that I have never heard another human do. Um, so she recorded a lot of really experimental things, um, some like Latin chanting, some overtone singing, some like throat, like um, like throaty percussive singing. Um, and those kind of appear throughout as we see Sheldon kind of spiral into his madness, essentially, um, as he's following these clues which lead them to the island. So the intention was to sort of just not shove it in the audience, down the audience's throat, like that, oh, vocals, vocals. They're really part of the fiber of the score, but in a very subtle way. And they become more and more present as we they get closer to arriving at the island. And then once they're at the island, it's really in the in the tapestry of the music there. So it kind of just started as me making a decision early on, like I want this to be a choral thing. And then vocals became part of the score because of that to help shape the score essentially. And, you know, that's all well and good in theory. And then like, you know, sometimes creatively you find a concept that you think is compelling and then you actually get to the point where you have to write it and you're like, oh no, what did I do? What have I done to myself? Like, can I actually pull this off? You know, and episode seven was just the scope and scale of it is so nuts um, that there was a lot of like really, really big musical moments in it. And this was the final scene in the in the episode. And I was like, can I do this? Like, is this going to work? And there was a lot of, um, yeah, there was a lot of self-loathing involved as sometimes that does happen when you're a creative person. Um, I was, you know, it's one thing to create something in a bubble of, of your own studio and stuff. Um, it's another thing to you know, get performers to sing it and hope, hope it's going to be all good because I, I, I hired the choir to sing it before I even played it for anyone because it wasn't going to be convincing to the producers if it was a mocked up choir, you know, if it was a mm -hmm. fake choir that wasn't going to work. And another idea that I had for it was that like, okay, they have to sing on some sort of words or some sort of syllables. So I was like, how can I make this really purposeful? So I went back to the original comic book series by Mark Millar and I picked out some of his text. I like picked out um, some moments that mimicked the moments in episode seven. I took that text and had it translated into Latin and that's what the choir is singing on. So it had to be, it had to be recorded before I showed it to anyone <laughs> because there were so many elements at play there. Um, and it was a big undertaking, but, you know, hearing the choir come together, there's just really nothing like hearing a live ensemble. A fun little anecdote about that, obviously this was all written last year. So everybody was locked down here in LA. Scoring sessions really weren't happening. Um, at the time that I wrote this, it was probably in August. Um, things were opening up slowly again, but there were no choirs being recorded. It's just too, it's too risky, it's too dangerous. So I was like, how are we, how are we gonna accomplish this? Um, I would have loved nothing more than to have rented a stage and just been there in front of all these wonderful singers and just kind of felt that moment, but that wasn't a, a reality at all. So I was like, okay, how do we get this done? Um, and the choir contractor, Jasper Randall here in LA, he was like, I'll find you nine of the best singers that we have that I know have their own home studio setups. Um, and so I know the quality is gonna be really good. So he really, he really came through. Um, basically, it was only nine singers for the whole choir, but they multi-tracked six times each. So there were six layers, slightly different uh, performances for each person. They did it in a couple hours. They all sent it back to me. I sent it over to a mixer to kind of just like get it all together and make it sound, you know, decent. 
he sent it back to me a half hour later and it was just, that's what it was. It was just, it sounded like a huge lush choir sound. I was so, so blown away at what could be accomplished with everybody just recording in their own spaces, only against the track, like nobody else to kind of, and that's that's what performance and recording is, is with an ensemble is you wanna be able to like bounce your color and your dynamic off of other people. And especially they were singing in Latin. So it's like you have syllables and consonants and plosives and stuff that you wanna like have together as as a group. Um, I, I was really concerned, but the, it, the way it came together was just like so mind blowing and, um, it's a cute little COVID <laughs> recording remotely story. Um, but I was, yeah, I was really shocked and pleased. That is so awesome. I, when I heard the theme in the episode, I was like, not the theme, excuse me, the chorale. I was like, I feel like I'm at a Voshes 8 concert in a <laughs> cathedral right now. And that little uh blurb about the where you got the text from first off I love that you actually looked at the comics I am a giant comics nerd nice. so whenever someone actually like goes back and looks at it even for like a smallish thing I think mm -hmm. it is so cool and then with these press releases when Netflix sends them to us they give us like this little packet with like a list of fun facts mm -hmm. and the fact that nothing about this awesome chorale was in there is like <laughs> like this would have been so cool so the inspiration for this costume came from da 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 da, -da. you should say the music for this chorale comes from the comics that would have been so cool it's in some stuff like I don't know I never know how this press stuff works to be honest but I'm talking about it in every interview like with you you know I'm talking about it to people because I think it was it was one of the most re rewarding um artistic parts of the process for me for sure that's I love that. I love hearing that story. I'm sure everyone else is going to love it too. I hope so. <laughs> so in addition to this choral sound, there are so many kind of different sound palettes in this series because you're jumping between timelines, generations. So many of the heroes have different powers and you can tell from the music that how they're going to act is dramatically different. I remember the first time Chloe Sampson, the daughter in this series, who's kind of the rebel, she is about to use her powers as an adult for the first time on screen. And all of a sudden I just hear that low, I'm like, oh, something <laughs> epic is gonna happen right now. She's angry. <laughs> some of it's super synthesizer heavy. And then some of it, especially when you have the original Alliance getting ready to fight is super orchestral at the same time, as you mentioned, because it's like a giant motion picture almost instead of serialistic. It's so cohesive. How did you develop all these different sounds into this one entity? That's a great question. Um, and thank you for noticing that. That's that's very insightful of you. Um, yeah, with certain characters, I mean, I tried, I set out to create character themes or motifs for a lot of our, a lot of our gang, essentially. So, you know, Sheldon has the main show theme, the, the union theme, which is often heard on French horn. Sometimes it's in more sensitive moments. It's on um, acoustic guitar or piano or a synth even. 
Um, we have, uh, there's this little adventure theme that I kind of wrote. It's not quite a theme. It's more just like a cycle. It's, it's a motif. It's kind of a germ, I would say. Um, it's like a cycle of four or five notes that is kind of just everywhere. Whenever like something's picking up, it's just like a little seed that's in there. Um, we have a theme for Grace, uh, a theme for Chloe and Raiku and Brandon and Walter <laughs> and George. Um, they're, they're really, you know, a lot of the, a lot of those themes didn't get as much, you know, use as some other ones just because of the, the nature of where music needed to be. But um, Chloe and Raiku were definitely two of the people and Hutch as well were, were three of the, the characters who I felt needed a grittier kind of darker sort of theme for them. Um, when I sat down to write Chloe's theme, it was one of the first themes I had written. I didn't really know what was going to come out, um, but her first action sequence, what you were talking about, where she uses her power, we see her use her powers for the first time. Um, it just felt like it demanded a different palette. There was something about it that was like, this girl's really special. Um, she doesn't buy into the whole, the code, the union. She is like fully against what that life represents. Um, she really is the rebel as, as you, as you noted. Um, so I, I didn't exactly know what kind of profile her theme was going to take, but I sat down and just like what came out was this kind of industrial rock sort of theme for her. Um, you know, it's like very heavy guitar based, like distorted percussion synths. And it just seemed to fit that scene quite well. There was something about it that just worked for her swagger and just her attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, then she has she has moments where she struggles with drug addiction, and there's like some some real darkness in her story as well. So you know, industrial rock isn't like the most appropriate thing to put under scenes like that. So what I had to do there was her melody was still the same. So the melody that you heard on electric guitar and synths in her action sequence, you know, poured it over to like a belly instrument or a piano or something something more intimate and um, delicate. And it's still the same theme. And there's like um, a connection there for her in those intimate moments for us to, to just like, yeah, she's got this rough attitude um, to everybody else in the world, but these are her internal struggles and here's her theme, but it's a different interpretation of it. Um, so I, I really enjoyed writing that theme for her. It felt special to me. And then Hutch, you know, Hutch doesn't really have a theme, but he has like a sting. Um, I call it the bass growl. It's just yeah. kind of every every time he's on screen, it's just like this really low, grumbly, um, dangerous bass sound. And that seemed to just fit his character so well, I think, especially because we don't really know, like Hutch is a bit of an enigma for the audience because we don't know if he's like this insidious, dangerous, violent character. We don't really know what his story is. It kind of slowly unfolds. Um, we just know that he's just kind of a, a question mark, um, but painting him in this light where there was some darkness seemed to be the right thing to do. Um, and that was a that was fun to be able to just like kind of follow his movements and like add that sting where it, it felt like he was being real hutchy. Um, and yeah, like Raiku, obviously, Raiku's my favorite character in the series. Um, she, her action sequence in the beginning of episode seven is so cool and stylized and she's just such a wild card and um, she demanded a different palette for sure. Um, I was like, I wanted to give her a motif too. She doesn't quite have a theme, but just I wanted something for her. And so what I ended up doing, I don't really know where I got this idea from, but I... Um, 
called up a trumpet player friend of mine, Jake Baldwin. And I was like, hey, can you just like make some weird sounds into the mouthpiece of your trumpet? Like take your <laughs> the mouthpiece off your trumpet and just like make some weird bendy kind of things. And I gave him like a little bit of guidance on it. And he sent me back all sorts of different stuff, which was so cool and weird and wonderful. Um, and so she has this like strange motif that sort of follows her around um, in her action sequence and then just in all of her scenes, basically. Uh, that it kind of just really doesn't sound like anybody else's thing. It's a bit subtle, but it's it's odd and kind of mysterious and endearing. So you have that stuff, and then you have some people with more traditional themes, like George has a plucked dulcimer thing, and he also has a song that follows him around as well. Um, having all of these different colors and varied instrumentation, it I, I didn't feel like it was hard to marry them just because, um, you know, as my writing generally tends to um, be quite hybrid, like electronics are a big part of what I do. They, they always have been. Synth programming is a big part of the way I write music. But I also grew up playing in orchestras, playing violin. So the the symphonic element is is always been part of, you know, the DNA of, of the way that I write. And for some of these big action sequences, you know, like the hilltop, battle in episode one, um, where she's like this really brutal battle with Blackstar, um, it needed like a bit of both for sure. Um, and a lot of the big sequences needed to have that hybrid element of it. And I think hearing, you know, industrial rock with Chloe, and then hearing like a big orchestral action sequence, they're not a million miles away from each other. But I liked the idea that stylistically, you know, Chloe's profile does stand out as being a little bit unique, but it's not like a complete left turn. You know, um, I think there wasn't like specific attention paid to that. I think it just sort of happened organically. And like you said, we're hopping time periods. So there was there was a conversation in the beginning, like, let's not comment on the time period shifts because we want it to feel cohesive right it's like let's not just have a bunch of flugelhorns and stuff um <laughs> that was that was important for the producers and the showrunner like we're good like we do have a song that follows george around that's enough to give it that um kind of period feel and then also the cine cinematography is very different um in the past and in the present the present is more handheld and, and the past it's like a different aspect ratio so it was doing everything visually that the, the score, it didn't really make sense for it to suddenly do a 180 for that. It was important to like have the score stay with the characters, whether it's their origin story or whether it's where they are in, in present day. It's the same character. It's just like, how have we evolved this essentially over time? Yes, how did Sheldon get from his Clark Kent haircut <laughs> to clearly not having washed it in the past 120 years. No, no. I don't think he discovered dry shampoo. I think I think he missed the boat on the dry shampoo. <laughs> it was against his code. His code must says be. only liquid shampoo. Yes, yes. <laughs> they just left that part out because it was less interesting. <laughs> so one of the things I personally noticed um, that transferred well from the comics to the show is Jupiter's legacy has all these bits and pieces that we've seen throughout the superhero world and really brings them together. There's moments where I'm like, yeah, that's Power Rangers. <laughs> or um, we have some kinds of things from Samurai Cinema. It's everything from Marvel and Dark Horse to Indiana Jones, these 
tropes and ideas we've seen before brought to the modern day for this hands-on confrontation. What kinds of things did you watch and listen to when you were looking at these ideas? Interesting question. Yeah, I started this project fully knowing like this is a superhero narrative, definitely done through a different lens, which I loved. Um, and fully aware that like a lot of people have superhero fatigue at this point too. Um, and you know, those tropes are almost impossible to escape. What I think Jupiter's legacy did is kind of just made it a pastiche of a lot of things, which is, um, enjoyable, but like at the heart of it really is a family drama. So it's like, you could take away their powers and it just feels like a, a gritty drama in a way, you know, how we face our relationships with our parents or our children or our siblings and how, how do we um, contend with the, some of the issues that we've had um, with the people closest to us. Leading up to starting the score, um, I intentionally did not listen to any superhero scores. Um, I am familiar with, you know, uh, like some of the classic themes and stuff. Um, but like, I didn't want to feel colored by what else is kind of in this canon, this genre. Um, I don't know that superhero music is even really a genre of, of film music per se. I think it's just all up to interpretation, but um, I wanted to just feel influenced by this story because this story was doing, yes, it has those tropes, but um, it's doing something else. So I kind of just wanted to have an organic experience, like what was I inspired to write? Um, from that. I tried not to bring any kind of outside influences into it. Um, I kind of created it a little bit in, in a bubble and who knows what would have happened if I, if I did kind of do a deep dive on some other stuff on like some music, um, some other superhero music or read more comics or, or watch more movies. I don't know how that would have influenced me, but I'm happy that I got to just like kind of focus just on this narrative and see what, what came out of it. I think that produced a really unique pound, pound. <laughs> I think that produced a really unique sound. My friends and I, when we're watching superhero movies or something, we're always like, okay, and the fanfare is probably going to happen now. Yeah. But we didn't have moments like that in Jupiter's Legacy, at least from my interpretation. It was very organic and more dependent on the story rather than you gotta know it's a superhero movie we gotta point it out again yeah they got the sure. capes on it's already they, they got the capes they fly into the sky it's like they got check check you know like it had it had that and there were certain there were certain moments where I was like okay I, this might need a little superhero thing <laughs> I tried not to think of it like that um there's one moment in particular that I'm thinking of which is in episode one where um it felt very Marvel to me. Like I was aware of that as I was writing it. Yes, um, I hate to say that. Jess's hair turns. There's there's some of that, and then there's um, Brandon Paragon. You know, like being at the diner in the first episode, and then him hearing the chaos of uh, the the heist that's happening, and then he runs through the alley and he like rips like his shirt, and you see the Union symbol. And um, I was like, okay, I think I might need to push push the envelope <laughs> I need to push the superhero music here um so if they're like those moments are few and far between I really think they focused less on those kind of big hero moments and more on just like the intimacy of the characters and the development of the, of the relationships um but yeah certainly there was a there was a bit of that 
I really like that. As you said, it's kind of more like a family drama than this group of superheroes fights the big bad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not to say we don't have our big bad. We do have Black Star, but he's in a prison most of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always like the threat of something else. And then there's obviously something even seedier and darker happening that we don't realize, you know, Um, so that's there's a big bad there the whole time that's you know there's something there's something twisted happening there um which is which is kind of fun mm-hmm. <laughs> think of too many spoilers i was given a note from netflix yes. and red saying you can't say things <laughs> yeah i'm trying to, trying to get <laughs> you're all good you haven't said anything tom holland level yet though so <laughs> i don't know if you knew that he gets in trouble for giving spoilers I, to the I public have... a lot I have heard. It is tough to talk about, especially when you're so intimate with the material. It's like, oh no, what don't I say? I have to remember not to say that. Absolutely. The temptation is there because of course you're invested. Totally. So what is something you feel like you really learned from working on this project? Yeah, that's a tough one. I you know, to be totally candid um, about being a creative person, because I think it's important to talk about this stuff. Um, this was like a big project for me. Obviously, I'm not like a hyper decorated composer. I've, I've, you know, worked for many years with Harry Gregson Williams and and being able to write music for, for lots of big films and shows. Um, but doing a show like Jupiter's Legacy on my own, um, was was a daunting undertaking. I wasn't sure, like, can I make the best of this? You know, you always kind of psych yourself out and you're like, what if I can't deliver it at the level that it needs to be? Um, and I had a little bit of hesitation about that going in, a little bit of nerves, but as I got going, I was like, okay, I feel good about the stuff that I'm coming up with. And then episode seven came. And uh, like I said, you know, there were some of these scenes, not only this the scene that I was talking about with the choir, but the scene, the penultimate scene, um, where all of our characters are stuck in this like rock wall um, space and they, they have to figure out a way to get out. That was a really daunting scene for me to do too, because um, there was, I had to create the sound design for some of the sounds for the lights as like the characters put their hands on the wall. Um, I had to create all of that stuff too. And then that big choir moment, and then all of these crazy things that happen on the island. Um, I I wasn't sure like if I was gonna really be able to pull it off to the level that I wanted to. And I think that's the reality of being a creative person is like, you never quite know, um, like, are you gonna be able to do this? Coupled with the fact that like, by the time we got to episode seven, the schedules were really, really demanding. So episode seven is about 55 minutes long, I think. And there's 52 minutes of score. I mean, it's like pretty action packed um, wall-to-wall music. And I think I had about 10 days, 10 or 12 days to do the whole thing. So it was, and it was like important music, you know, it's not like, you know, it needed to be really specially crafted. So having to write these really important big musical moments in such a short period of time, I was kind of like, is this even possible? Um, and like, do I have what it takes, you know, like, I think there's always a little part of that inside of all of us. Um, and you're just sort of like, there's a lot of like, like I said, like self-loathing involved in that. 
Um, but I, I do think that the fact that there was a time crunch on it worked to my benefit because I think you get so much adrenaline rushing through and you're just like in this hyper creative space that you just have to commit, right? Like you don't have a ton of time to just like work out a bunch of ideas and you're like, which one's best? Like you just have to like make a decision and commit to it. And I think that actually worked to my advantage because I wasn't like sitting around, you know, I mean, I was ripping my hair out. I have to be honest about that. But like, um, I think, I think that definitely benefited me and what I learned having to write these really big cues and musical moments in such a short period of time on the scale that they were at, I really had to rely on my instincts and you know, you never know if your instincts are sharp enough for you to like really be able to pull it off. But I think the biggest thing that I learned on this project was like in these times where the demand is so intense and there feels like it feels like there's a lot at stake creatively, um, I can rely on myself. I think that's what I learned. It was an important lesson just for me to learn as a composer. Um, like I have done this enough and I have kind of garnered these tools over the years to be able to tackle something at this creative scale. And I honestly wasn't sure if I I, I could. Um, and I think just me, <laughs> by virtue of me being happy with the product that says that, yes, I can rely on myself. Oftentimes I write music and then I have space from it. And I'm just like, why did I do that? I hate every second of this. <laughs> you know, that's just like sort of the way I feel about some of my stuff. But if I can like take pride in what I wrote, I think there's something for me to learn that like it, it was good for me to be able to rely on my instincts there because I came out with something that I was proud of. And I think something that serves the story quite well. Um, and that's not to say, you know, like starting new projects now that like it gets easier because I honestly don't think it gets easier. I think <laughs> every new project brings its own set of unique challenges and you always question yourself just as much. Like, did I ever know how to do this? What's going on? You know, like, why can't I come up with what I want to come up with? Um, but that was an important lesson for me to be like, you have enough experience, you have the tools, like you can do it. You can get to that point to give that product that you have in your mind conceptually, like you can make it there. Well, that is awesome. And I have to say, you definitely did deliver. It was, <laughs> thank you. I loved the music. Obviously, I'm biased because <laughs> I love superhero music and scores in general, but you definitely did deliver. You did a great job. And thank you should you. be super proud. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Of course. On a slightly, slightly lighter note, if you could have the powers of any of the characters in this series, Whose would you want and why? I think I'd probably want Raikou's powers. Um, I know I said that she's my favorite character, but I know, you know, her and Walter do share the same set of powers, which is being able to go get and in, go into the mind um, of another person and control them. I just love that aspect of mind control. I think it's really cool. Coupled with the fact that Raikou is just such an amazing fighter. She's just like an amazing combat fighter. Um, I, I would love to be able to just like be as awesomely stealthy and smart and just witty as her. I think she's the best. She's pretty badass. What would, who would you pick? I would probably pick Chloe. I think that one, I, after like seeing her in her mini battles and stuff, I'm convinced 
that she's actually more powerful than everybody else. Yeah, totally. And also, and also we only see this in the series in the very first episode where she just yells and creates an earthquake. Yes. And I would love that. That would be a great way to get my point across. I totally agree. Yeah. What a punctuation, you know, to put on like an argument or something. Yeah. She, she is so powerful. I mean, it's, it's really outrageous. And the fact that we see her use those powers so sparingly, it's almost as if it's just like, you know, it makes you question more like, why doesn't she want to use these? But also it makes sense why she wouldn't want to use them because she is so insanely powerful. Um, yeah, it's, it's that, that action sequence that she has during, after the van chase is just so cool. And, um, yeah, when she's a kid, uh, in episode one, seeing that kind of like orb around her, she just pushes everything away from her and like creates this earth shattering sort of (laughs) situation. It's, it's so cool. All she wanted was some ice cream, man. That's all. I mean, just give the girl what she wants. It's not difficult. (laughs) So as we wrap up, I can't believe it's already been over half an hour. I've had so much fun talking Same. to you. Do you have any last words for young creators out there who are listening to this podcast or watching it online who are starting to make their way into the world of media scoring? Yeah, I think I have a lot of advice for those people. Um There are so many people trying to pursue this. Um, We definitely live in an age now where there's so much content. It's shocking. You know, it's shocking how much music there is out there, how how much of everything there is. And it can become like quite numbing and it's, it can feel a bit daunting um, at times. And we're also at like a time where you know, a lot of the same music is being written over and over again, which is, which is quite unfortunate. You know, when we sit down to work on a project, you know, 99% of the time there's a temp track there, which is just, you know, um, as I'm sure, you know, there's just, um, pre-existing music that's put up to the picture as just a temporary placeholder for score. You're seeing now more and more that the same pieces end up in temp tracks and they're great pieces of music. You know, they're, they're like Hans Zimmer, Johan Johansson, um, and people get so attached to them that the composer who's scoring it has to rip it off, right? So that's like so common and there are so many ripoffs of the same piece of music. Now we're at the point where the ripoffs are in the temp track. So it all just kind of feels like a copy of a copy of a copy. There's so much of the same music kind of being written. Um, my encouragement for people pursuing this and starting to get into this industry is like, be true to yourself and your musical sensibilities. Create music that feels genuine to you. Don't create music that you think sounds like film music. I actually think it's a problematic kind of approach to scoring. Um, There are so many wonderful, unique, strange, different films being created now and TV series. There's so many diverse creators who are finally getting the opportunity to like make their stories heard. Um, And you need like, we need people who are doing more of that in music in filmmaking and cinematography. We just, we need that to keep the industry evolving and to keep this art form evolving. So I feel like there's a lot of pressure, especially when you're starting out in school to just be like, write, write like a, 
big sweeping John Williams theme or like write an action sequence like this composer um, or yeah, you know, stuff like that. I think, I think it's good to practice all different styles of writing and whether that's embodying the style of another composer. I think that's great to do when you're starting out just to like give you another experience and studying the work of other composers is always a really good thing to do. I mean, in music school, we're always doing score studies of Mozart and Beethoven and Ravel. This is no different. I definitely think it's important to have the experience writing like that, but I think it's more crucial to write music that feels what feels like you. I don't think like having a unique voice, like finding your unique voice is, I don't even know if that's really a thing, to be honest. I think we're just sort of a mixture of all of our experiences and influences musically or artistically um, from childhood. I think that's just, it's sort of our interpretation of what we love about art. I think just like cling to that, you know, don't, don't try to make yourself into something else. And especially in an industry where, you know, I had to do it. Like I worked under and I wrote music under a bigger composer. So I had to write like him, you know, that's like, that's the practicality of sometimes getting your start is that you have to write like someone else. If you're going to write for them, there needs to be like special attention paid to making sure that you're still doing you right. Whatever that means. Um, so write all sorts of different music, but like never approach something and be like, I'm just going to write a copy of something else. I think it's important, no matter how much a director or producer pushes you to like copy the temp track, you know, sometimes it's just, it's worth having your own stamp on it and doing your own interpretation. Um, because that's really all we have. Like we, we need newer voices. We need diverse voices. And, um, no matter how experimental or different your music might be from what is considered media music, um, it doesn't matter. Like, I think the strongest reels and the strongest music that I hear from younger people are people who have like a unique voice and they're doing something that feels real to them, no matter how different it is. So on like a big scale, that would be my advice to anybody who's pursuing this. Beautiful. Thank you so much of course. for your advice and for coming on my show. Have a great rest of your day. This will come out right as soon as the embargo allows us right on May 7th. Awesome. I hope you enjoy all the reception you get from the premiere and I wish you all the luck in the world on your future projects. Thank you so much, Sapphire. I appreciate it. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me today on Chatting with Creators. I know this episode came out a little later than usual on Friday instead of Tuesday, but you know what? Sometimes you just gotta follow the rules that Netflix put out for you. And I'm so thankful to Netflix and White Bear PR for giving me such the fantastic opportunity to interview Stephanie before the series came out and to have this interview come out right as the series does. I think... Not only does this help me make my podcast more popular, but it also makes it so that it's more relevant so that people can listen to the creators whose material they're watching right at that time. And I feel really lucky to get to do that. When I started this series just a year ago, I never could have believed that I would be at this point interviewing creators such in the mainstream. I will be taking the next week or so off from the series in terms of publishing and editing to relax. I just got out of finals from my third year of university 
at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, so I need a bit of a break, and during that time, I'm going to film a few new episodes and get a head start on production planning for the rest of the summer. Around two weeks from when this episode is coming out May 7th, you guys will see the rest of the tentative schedule for this summer, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Have a great weekend, guys, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye!